the, the article's message is short and clear. It's that venture capital is fucked. <laughs> and, and it's kind of this broken industry that's been driven by egos and false profits and a business model that is so rigid that it's unable to adapt and change to new macroeconomic conditions. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Hey folks, welcome back to the most awesome founder podcast and another of our inspiration sessions where we discuss current topics that made us think, learn, and laugh. Of course, this wouldn't be possible without my main podcasting podcasting squeeze, Professor Dries Foms, who did manage to hit the record button this time. <laughs> <laughs> Dries, it's uh, really good to be back doing one of these. These are some of my favorite formats, and I just love spending time geeking out with you. Yes, great to be here, Gareth. <laughs> uh, we were I love it how we were literally just joking. We're using a new software for this, and we're just joking offline that, like, you know you're getting old when you're feeling resistant to new software, and it took all but 15 seconds, and we forgot <laughs> to start the software. <laughs> oh, my, my son is going to roll his eyes if he listens to this, but cool. Well, you know, it's nice to do these. I, I think our last episode was really, really cool having Alex Osterwalder on the episode. Of course, having the two episodes with Sven Groylich talking about all the, the founder pitfalls. So, you know, I think we had um, we had one piece that was just really practical, kind of hands-on uh, tips and tricks. And then we had, you know, really a an incredible thought leader kind of talk, talking about strategy. And now we get to kind of go back into our world of, of current events, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, things that are happening in the world of, uh, of business and startups or things that are happening in the world of research around those topics. And uh, it's always nice to find that spot in the middle between these two world streets. So why don't you, as usual, as per the format, kick things off and uh, share something recently that has made you think. Yeah, and as always, I brought some academic papers with me, <laughs> so maybe not the most <laughs> practitioner-oriented pieces, but I think they might be the starting points for some interesting discussions. And the first paper that I brought with me is a paper uh, that has as the title, Valuable Choices, prominent venture capitalists' influence on startup CEO replacements. And it's written by Conti and Graham, and it was published in Management Science quite recently, which is one of the most prominent journals in our field. And so as the title suggests, this is about 
the replacement of startup CEOs. So we have founders that founded a company and that at a certain point might be replaced uh, by another CEO. And this paper focuses on the role of venture capitalists in this decision. And before I go into the paper, uh, maybe get at a question to you. Actually, I think there is quite a substantial debate today about whether you should keep the founder as a CEO or whether over time you should replace them. And I think if we look at famous examples, we can find examples of both. You have Mark Zuckerberg, who has stayed on as the founder CEO for a very long time. And I think last year there was an intense debate about should he actually leave or not, whereas other companies have had CEO replacements, sometimes successful, sometimes unsuccessful. Now, now, based on your own experience, do you have a particular position in this debate? I have a pretty strong position. Okay. <laughs> Why am I not surprised that you have a strong position? <laughs> who, who, me, having an opinion? <laughs> who knew? Yeah, I, I do, actually. And it's a conversation that I have a lot with founders, especially ones that are, you know, neg negotiating their first you know, financing and are saying, oh, you know, what is this going to do? Is this going to put the VC, the, the investor in a position to fire me? And, oh, I know these horror stories of founders getting fired. And, and yeah, sure, there's, there's good actors and bad actors that exist out there. But, you know, I think good entrepreneurs know where they're most dangerous and where they're not. And, mm. you know, I think good entrepreneurs have to kind of look within themselves and know where their their skill sets are most applicable now that doesn't mean you can't grow and learn on that journey and it certainly doesn't mean you need to pull the trigger too early on these things right because i think in the early stages vision is super important you know, and you need to have that the culture that comes along with the founders and the energy and the passion. But, you know, I'll be the first to say, like, I know my place. I am there. I have an expiry date. I have a pretty good <laughs> idea when that expiry date comes. And and I think it's twofold. You know, it, one is where I'm most effective. And the other is what do I enjoy the most? Yeah. And I, I have had founders on this podcast that talked about their founder journeys that went to IPO and how profoundly their lives changed and how less enjoyable it was. And even on a smaller scale, you know, people that love working in, you know, small, tight-knit collaborative teams, and then all of a sudden you have a 50, 100, 200 people working for you, and you don't become a, a founder and a leader anymore, and you become more of a manager or a manager of managers. And that's a very different experience. So I think, you know, part of it is like knowing who you are, knowing what you want, and knowing what you're good at. And if you don't have the foresight to do that, sometimes your shareholders have to do that for you. Yeah. So if you don't have the kind of introspection to make the decision yourself, maybe others will make the decision for you. Yeah. Or you have too big of a damn ego, which yeah. is often part of that experience of <laughs> yeah. why people aren't looking, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the question that the authors address in the paper is the question, do prominent VCs, are they more likely to replace the founder than less prominent VCs? And when we talk about prominent VCs, it means you have a VC investor that is very well connected. I think about the sequoias of the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, VC investors that everybody knows that are very well connected. And so these authors uh, were asking the question, 
would prominent VCs be more inclined to replace the founder and hire a new CEO, or would they be less inclined to do so? Any, do you want to bet on one of the, the options? Would they be more inclined to do it or less inclined to do it? Hmm. That's, uh, that's a tough call. Honestly, mm-hmm. I, I mean, my gut instinct, well, I actually, I, it's hard for me to say because I think in some ways they're cut, those high profile VCs come with a, a track record of success, greater record, maybe more confidence in their role in the journey and would be more inclined. However, VC is such a game of reputation. Mm-hmm. It is such a massive, you know, tight walk that they do to appear founder friendly. They need to make sure the founders are going to take their money. You know, maybe if you're Sequoia, you are insulated from the bad reputation because you're so you're too big to get that. But um, yeah, I guess I'm going to go with when you're talking about the big behemoths, I'm going to say they're more likely to. Yeah. No, actually, uh, I feel your internal struggle that you have to answer this question. And uh, actually, the, the researchers had the same struggle. Mm-hmm. So, and this is quite rare for academic papers. They did not really formulate a hypothesis in one direction. So they actually mm-hmm. said, look, we expect that the direction could be in both directions. On the one hand, you could argue if you have a prominent VC investor, you would expect that they are more able to select the to invest in startups with good founders, mm-hmm. which might reduce the need to replace them because you actually have selected the mm-hmm. founder teams with the best founders, so then you don't have to replace them. But at the same time, they were also saying, yeah, but actually as an, a prominent VC, you have the rich network, so you will be actually founders with very good CEOs, which might actually mm-hmm. increase your likelihood to do so. So mm-hmm. upfront, they didn't make a very strong prediction. They said, look, we can see arguments in both directions and let's just look at the data to find out what is actually uh, the effect. So they collected a huge amount of data on US-based startups. So they combined secondary data from all kinds of sources, checked which kinds of VC investors are invested. And of course, then they analyzed, has the original founder be replaced by a new CEO and what kind of VC investors were involved? And they do complex statistics and uh, in the end, their finding is that yes, prominent VC investors are more likely to replace the initial founder by a new CEO. Yeah? So as a founder, if you are kind of attracting prominent VCs, be aware that m- actually these people might in the end replace you by somebody else. They also found that the CEOs that come in, uh, so the, the founder is replaced by a CEO and the CEOs that come in they are actually disproportionately experienced. So these prominent VCs are not only replacing you, they are replacing you by people that have a lot of experience, which actually indicates that they indeed have this ability to attract out of their network very experienced CEOs to replace you. And they found out, which is also interesting, that if the founder is replaced by a CEO, that this on average is associated with more innovation, a higher survival rate, and stronger performance. So actually, on average, their conclusion is replacing the founder by a CEO has a positive impact on the success of a startup. Hmm. So that's what they came to the conclusion. 
And of course, why does this also make me think? It's a bit like, I found it an interesting paradox because if you believe this research, um, actually as a founder, do you really have an interest in uh, having a prominent VC on your board because it seems to increase the likelihood that you will be kicked out in the end, which seems to trigger an interesting tension, at least from my perspective, I would say. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't, right? Now, <laughs> there's there's some interesting components in there, right? Like a prominent VC is going to usually revest founders. So literally, they may be able to throw someone out of the company and take a bunch of their shares along with it. That could mm. be extremely problematic. But what I'm more interested in is, as usual, is the why, right? Yeah. Like if you if you took a sample of startups from 1990 to 2000 or 2005 versus 2005 to 2020, to, you know, how different would that pattern look? Because you look at the, you know, Gen 1 or Gen 2 or whatever you call that kind of web 1.0 kind of era, um, you generally had business people leading a largely consumer facing consumer internet early SaaS ventures right so there were strong business minds in those in those leadership founder roles nowadays with deep tech and some of the innovation you're getting a lot of kind of technical founders right which may be really good at solving engineering problems but may not be so good at solving commercialization problems no. right and that's that's where things get really interesting right is you know, the business guys oftentimes have a little bit longer of a lifespan and the longevity of the business when, mm. you know, an engineer could fade into obscurity as the business evolves and grows. And I know a lot of technical founders that were founders that ended up being, you know, 10th in the hierarchy of engineers in their company as no. it grew, right? No. So be interesting to, to really look at what are the founder profiles that are being replaced. Um, yeah. But yeah, in yeah. terms of the big ones, I, I don't think that should be, if you're making decisions on your VCs by your fear of getting fired, <laughs> I think you have to do some other soul searching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it's already maybe an indication that you should not engage with VCs, not if you're thinking <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah, or, or engage in startups in general. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Um, did did they actually point to? Was this a, like a Silicon Valley focused study? Did it say anything about the ge geography of? No. The so research? the sample is. The, so they looked at all uh, startups in the U.S. Um, that had VC investments in a certain time period. I don't. I don't know by heart the time period, but it's not focused only on. Uh, Silicon Valley, but it is focused on VC-backed startups, yeah, of course. Gotcha. So that's that's the limitation. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, not all VCs are built equal, yeah. which, uh, which I think will make a good segue to the topic that I want to bring up that made okay. me think. <laughs> and I did something that I've never really done before, and I don't even know if it's appropriate, but <laughs> I took, I, I'm talking about an opinion piece that was okay. written in, in the Financial Times a few days ago that, I mean, look, the topic is something that made us think, and damn, this thing made me think. So uh, the article from the Financial Times just a few days ago is called A Difficult Pivot Looms for Venture Capital. 
deglobalization, geopolitical competition, and the demise of cheap money require industry playbook to change. The reason, the reason this article sparked my interest is because, you know, I've been thinking of what VC 2.0 is going to look like. And I say 2.0 because, to be fair, this industry has looked pretty much the same for 50 years, mm -hmm. right? While everything has innovated around them, it has very much remained constant. The, the way funds are structured, the length of the funds, the LPGP relationships, the way capital is deployed... You know, we talk about Horizon 1 to Horizon 3 innovation. Like, these guys are playing in Horizon 0.1, right? Like, yeah, not, it is not a lot of disruption in the investors' in disruption or something. Not, not a lot. They've been operating off the same damn playbook. And this article essentially argues why it's about to bite them in the ass. And I thought it was really, <laughs> really, really interesting. So, you know, I mean... To summarize it, the, the article's message is short and clear. It's that venture capital is fucked. <laughs> and, and it's kind of this broken industry that's been driven by egos and false profits and a business model that is so rigid that it's unable to adapt and change to new macroeconomic conditions. So, you know, if you kind of you think about this, like some of the statistics in here were uh, extraordinary. You know, from the in the past decade, like VC has grown at a massive rate, you know, literally an order of magnitude in how much capital has funneled into the VC world the world over. Just last year alone, $163 billion was raised by US VCs only. Mm. And one of the reasons that happened, low interest rates. Yeah. So massively low interest rates led to a ton of dry powder out there. With all of that dry powder, the VCs gobbled it up and they did, they did crazy business, right? They, they really doubled down on this spray and pray method of like throw out as many deals as possible and hope one or two hit big. They chased bad deals with good money. You know, they, they started following the same startup trends. But, oh, now it's AI, now it's blockchain, now it's this, right? Now it's fast commerce, now it's mobility. And they became increasingly undisciplined at the expense of like really good due diligence. Why? Because there was a ton of cap, there was a ton of capital to burn and they, their job is literally to burn that capital. Now here we are, 2023, interest rates are rising. We've got things like the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, now Credit Suisse in Switzerland, and a growing avalanche of startup failures. On top of that, we have crazy macroeconomic changes, geo geopolitical approaches that are looking inward rather than global. And all these dynamics have really kind of laid the fundamental problems bare. Now, of course, some people are like, hey, don't panic. You know, interest rates will drop again, the dry powder will be back, and the VC world will go back to business as usual. But a lot of people are starting to think that this is delusional because mm. there, are, there are some really interesting structural problems that are in play. And this is what fascinated me about this paper. And there's just four points that I want to share with you. The first one, that software ate the world, and now it's eating VC. Right. So, you know, we're now in this kind of unstable geopolitical world. Um, you know, 
we're in a time and space that is in need of some serious rapid advances in science and technology, right? COVID played a big role. We're dealing with artificial intelligence. Like we're dealing with more and more political leaders looking within. People want to keep their their assets within their uh, borders of their nation states. However, VCs have been focusing on software. They've no. been looking for highly scalable software that you know, crosses borders and goes international at a really, really rapid pace. But like, here we are, the world is deglobalizing. It's focusing on data siloing, owning the data within the, the borders and the government governments are taking a more proactive approach and controlling the flow of data and IP, right? So here you have a big contrast, right? A global model invest in globalization and software and now a deglobalization in the regulatory environment but these yeah. are what the, this is what these organizations are trained to do the other part also within software is cons consumed by bugs right so like so much software you know and we talked with alex osterwalder about the lean startup right like deploy yeah. test 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 learn iterate right but so what we're doing is we're putting out software that is just loaded with vulnerabilities and bugs, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, we have more and more professional hackers and people that are able to expose those bugs. Governments in large companies are realizing the risk of dealing with anything that has those kinds of vulnerabilities. We've had so many breaches already, and they're focusing more attention on energy and security. Right. This is like shrinking cross-border trade. It's increasing the development costs of software and making it harder to ship these products. Again, here's you've got this massive kind of product, this mismatch product market fit where VCs are trying to deploy into something that is no longer a really easy market to do very effectively. Point three, they're just too soft for the hard game. Right. So we're seeing this greater focus towards hard sectors, right? Like agriculture, energy, life sciences, these are the industries that are really transforming the world right now. So nat naturally what happens, VCs say, okay, we're gonna pivot and focus more on these types of businesses. However, they're not seen as trusted partners in this space. Mm. You know, they're not the players that invested in energy or hardware or biotech or pharma. As a matter of fact, those hard industries only accounted for 12% of VC investment over the past decade. Mm. So for them to be able to say, okay, now we're going to focus less on software and more on these, good luck entering the door, right? When mm. you have all of these other capital actors that are at play. And then the last fundamental piece is the nature of VC itself. It's impatient, right? Like these are these are institutions that operate on ten-year cycles. You know, they're they're looking to pay out returns within those cycles. And now we're in the in the world of deep tech, of deep R and D. You know, innovation is coming out of research institutions and universities. They have long cycles. The VCs don't have those networks with those those uh, organizations and they don't have the patience to wait for things to happen. And I think you and I know startups very closely that are mm. coming out of universities with great, great innovation and they're having really hard time tapping into that type of capital. So now the VCs are going, hang on a second, maybe we should move our attention to there. And they simply don't have the structures 
to be able to work with those types of companies. So, you know, they're made to work with businesses that are commercialized quickly, regardless of imperfections, right? Like ready to go global. And what we're looking, what the world is looking for now are things that are more complex, take, take more time and have less imperfections because they're dealing with fundamental problems like human health, human energy, food supply. So it, it's almost like an unserious, you know, what was play money for things that were just designed to make money. Now we're getting into, you know, the real business and they're just not prepared. So no. sorry, long diatribe. I want this all poses one question that I'm interested in hearing your angle. Uh, about like does vc need a software update <laughs> or does it need a full freaking system reset and a rebuild of the operating system like can vc as we know it survive through the end of the 21st century or is there going to be a new mechanism of funding that is more aptly prepared to work with the type of ventures that we need now well, my opinion would be i think VC represents a particular type of financing investment that I think will stay relevant. Um, but the VC game needs to change. And I think you have perfectly described the VC game in the last 20 years, very software driven, uh, not paying too much attention to deep tech and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think if you go back to the 60s and the 70s, VC was very deep tech. And because I would say, Sequoia and that kind of companies have emerged out of the semiconductor industry. And I think you cannot think of a lot of <laughs> more kind of deep tech sectors than semiconductors. Mm -hmm. So I think we have seen that that's shift uh, when, when the internet exploded, that the, the VCs went into the internet, then into software uh, and then into uh, the, the subscription models, uh, whatever that meant. And so I think now we will have to see a cycle where they go back more into these deep tech topics that you were uh, mentioning, especially in terms of health, uh, climate. These will be the topics where the VCs will need to enter, but it might require a different approach and a different mindset. And that will be tough for a lot of them. Uh, because yeah, if you have done for 20 years in a very successful way, always the same game, uh, that's kind of the innovators dilemma, not changing your game, which has been very successful and is for some of them still very successful today, is I think quite difficult for them. It's so true. I would say, I, I would not expect VC as an investment class to disappear, mm -hmm. but they will have to reinvent themselves. And I think actually going back to the history, historical model of the 60s and the 70s might make sense in this so it's interesting. I, I completely agree on all accounts of what you said, but I think there's another component of VC. Like what we're talking about is the operations of the fund, the general partners, and the people that work within that fund, reshifting their mindset and their priorities. I, I'm in agreement. And I think that's absolutely doable. My, mm. concern, my concern is the structure itself. And, mm. and, and here's, here's the problem is now and there are we're seeing more evergreen funds especially in the impact and climate space things like that but for the most part we're still operating on limited life cycles and everybody has made their has made their paper by paying returns back to lps 
in that timely fashion, two, three, five, eight, ten x within a ten year cycle, right? Yeah, and, and that, to be honest, and the management fee. Let's not and the management fee. Oh yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> but the problem is, is if we start extending that life cycle and the returns mm. aren't coming back in that period of time, that LP base and all that dry powder that makes VC happen, a lot of it's gonna dry up because mm. pe pe LPs invest in VC as their high risk portfolio, right? That's part of their high risk you know, wealth management that they're dealing with. So they expect bigger returns, but the, they're not, you know, we're talking about humans that are investing their capital. I mean, yes, there's some bigger funds and family offices, but a lot of LPs are high net worths, right? Mm -hmm. And do they want to tie up their capital for 20 or 30 years in a high risk portfolio? That I think is questionable and problematic. Mm -hmm. So if the funds have to extend their lifespans to account for deeper R&D and these kinds of things, then one might argue that they lose that rich LP base that has made them so successful for so long. Yeah, at the same time, I see, oh, of course, LPs are often like these institutional pension funds and stuff like that, which of course have very long time horizons. So I think at least part of the LPs might be willing to go in that direction if you can give them a convincing model that they can get a decent return on investment. Uh, to be honest, sometimes I'm thinking like, okay, I, I think what has happened in the past two, three years, that has been the exception, yeah? that we had zero interest rates where money was just flooding into the system and where you had entities like SoftBank and Tiger Global just making the most crazy deals, which then forced others to do the same. Uh, but of course, this will have consequences uh, because the money that they received from LPs is money, to be honest, honest, that I saved for my pension. And so if this whole system collapse, at a certain point, the pension funds will start to have to tell to their people that have saved for their pension, yeah, sorry, we invested in uh, FTX <laughs> without doing a due diligence. Yeah, and now we cannot pay you your uh, kind of return that you expected. And so mm -hmm. I'm a bit concerned about what will be the public reaction to this mm -hmm. because you will have the reaction of the LPs mm -hmm. but at a certain point I think this will also trickle down to the public that suddenly sees that the return on investment on their pensions is not what they expected because you had these VCs that make very nice money because of their management fee mm -hmm. but that went into a, an irrational behavior uh, that in the end mm -hmm. hurts them and yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm yeah, I'm quite concerned about what that will mean. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, in many countries where you do have these pension funds that are that do participate in these types of investments, these are usually wealthy countries. They're dealing with mm. an aging population. There's already increased pressure on those funds. There's often you know more money going out than coming in. So mm. they're going to have to start taking more conservative approaches as well. And there is a potential where the whole house of cards can largely come crumbling down. Now, I don't think it's going to go away. I think private equity is here to stay. It has a, it serves a great role. But I just believe if there is not, you know, if we don't see some horizon three level innovation in this space, 
it's going to be a, a slow and painful death, you know, and, and if you think of the the catastrophe of, you know, a bunch of banks failing, if you mm. see if you see that private capital market, of, you know, dry up the way that it is like, wow, what impacts that would have on innovation, what impacts that would have on even the working class and, you know, fixed income people. So I think the problem is as well as a lot of these VCs are living off really, really nice management fees and they've been yeah. drinking their, they've been drinking their own Kool-Aid for so long, thinking that they can walk onto the racetrack and pick the winner every time. Mm that there's going to be, if there's not a profound shift and, and, and a little bit of panic to say, hey, let's start, we need to really start breaking this model. Um, we could be in for a, a, a very a, a stifling at a time when innovation is arguably at its, you know, human historical peak of what mm. our capabilities are. But it does need to be driven by finance to an extent. No, 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 I agree. Yeah. Cool. All right. Sorry, I beat, maybe beat that dead horse a little longer than I needed to, but it's a topic I think about a lot. Um, no, but I think or, it's, it's, it's a very fundamental topic. And I think we are now in a, in a kind of period where everybody realizes that 2020, 2021 have been very exceptional years. Mm -hmm. And I think it will take some time before we see the implications of that. And you now see uh, in the banking world that the weakest links are falling. Yeah? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but these are just the weakest links. And I think we will see the same in the VC industry, that first the weakest links are falling. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, to what extent will the whole system be contaminated? Or are we able to kind of contain the problematic parts mm -hmm. and keep the healthier parts safe? And I think we will have that discussion in the banking world today. And I, I expect that we will have a similar discussion in the VC world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but because I mean, we have these ten years time frames, I think it just takes a bit longer before yeah. we start see the implications of the irrational behavior of 2020-2021. Yeah, no, I think you're you're absolutely right. Although I would say I'm not sure it's just the weakest links anymore. You know, hmm. I mean, I've been spending a lot of time in Switzerland lately, and I would never have called Credit Suisse. <laughs> you went to your bank or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Literally changed banks, yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call that a weak link. I think, you know, any of these institutions, you know, connect a couple bad decisions back to back. And literally, the weak foundation that they're built on starts to, to fall apart. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to claim this isn't supposed to be a doomsday exercise. But I think it is important for entrepreneurs and founders that are interested in seeking venture capital that, you know, we kind of open people open the kimono and show that there are vulnerabilities there. Right. Yeah. And if to be fair, I would love to see more founders find creative ways to to bootstrap more, you yeah. know, or to tap into to different to other types of financing. And, you know, all we need is the rest of the world to catch up to that concept. But um, it's this reliance that that great innovators have that make me nervous when they have a, a potential weak link in the chain. So, OK. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to something maybe happier. I don't know what you're going to talk about next, Trace, but uh, give me something that made you learn. Let's hear it. Yes. And now I go to the topic, which is, is a very yeah, hot topic and it's heavily debated. 
and I don't want to keep it on the, the basic thing, eh, but we are talking about generative AI, ChatGTP. I think uh, if you open up your LinkedIn <laughs> account, you're kind of flooded with uh, all kinds of posts about what you can do with it, new tools. But what I was missing at the moment was a bit the academic research. So, okay, what, what does this mean for society? Will it make us better, make it worse? And luckily, I see now the first papers emerging that are starting to delve into this topic, namely the question, what will be or what are the first implications of generative AI? And I found a paper um, of two scholars of MIT, uh, Noi and Zhang. And so they published a working paper. And so as a disclaimer, it's not a peer-reviewed article, so it's not published in a journal. So this is just a paper that they published online as a working paper with the title, Experimental Evidence on the Productivity Effects of Generative Artificial Intelligence. And so I think the title is quite straightforward. What they want to test on an experimental basis is whether generative AI can make people more productive. Now, before I go into the paper, maybe, Garrett, just to, to see uh, what, what you are doing with generative AI. Are you using it nowadays in your work in one way or another? I mean, I do. I do use it, but more as a play toy than anything else, um, because I have some fundamental problems with it in the type of work that I do, right? Okay. And, you know, I, I think as a as a startup guy and particularly an early stage guy of course the one of the big metrics is speed right so you're mm -hmm. but you're always you're always looking for the fastest way to get from point a to b and and i believe that and i think there's some ways you can use this effectively what i don't like about it in the work that i do i think there are some great applications is that it somehow takes out a key variable that's so important which is the human element you know and like connecting connecting with humans having an authentic voice building relationships of trust you know like immediately as soon as somebody finds out that chat gpt wrote something which you're seeing increasingly more on news sites and blog sites and literally everywhere yep. immediately you feel like okay it has some good synthesis properties but it lacks a human element and um, so I, I don't like I don't like when it is used in places that a human should be. Now I think it is great as an internal tool, um, and I was even working with my comms team on this stuff. And my my guru of communications, he basically said like even he and his team use it but they don't mm. use it ever to create anything. They use it to synthesize thoughts and then bring the human back into the equation. It's when the human's not brought back into the equation, it feels contrived. And yeah. I find that problematic in, in my domain. Yeah. So yeah, your the, the human touch is something that you would see as an, an issue. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, I think the, I would fully agree with your first observation that you say, okay, I've played around with ChatGTP and I have a feeling that that's the stage where most people are at the moment. So everybody has gone to the website, 
try to write a poem for their wife or to <laughs> something like that, you know. Everybody has kind of made a story in the voice of somebody else uh, and that's fun to play with. But then the question is, yeah, but this will not really change our work. Um, but so what these scholars did was uh, they, um, so they created an experiment with um, professionals, mainly professionals that typically do a, a lot of text editing. I think about marketeers or people that have to write HR announcements, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so they first give them a writing exercise, uh, all of them. And then uh, half of the group uh, was allowed to start playing with ChatGDP and the other group didn't. And so they got a second writing task and one group was instructed, okay, you're allowed to use ChatGDP for the second writing task and the others were not allowed to use ChatGTP for the writing task. And so then the text uh, that they generated was evaluated and they checked how quickly did they wrote the text. But also they had then uh, um, a neutral um, evaluators that evaluated the quality of the text. And so then of course the question is, did the people that use ChatGTP, did they, uh, were, were they more efficient but also more effective? And actually, the answers were always positive. So the group that used ChatGDP was able to finish the task in a shorter amount of time, which I think is not that surprising. The more interesting thing was that the quality of the text written with the help of ChatGTP were evaluated as better than the ones that didn't write with ChatGTP. Mm. And I think the most interesting observation that they made was that actually the inequality between workers decreased. And what do I mean by that? So you had this first task where everybody had to write without ChatGTP. And then this also this first text was evaluated. And of course, then you have people that were performing relatively poor and other that were performing relatively better. Mm -hmm. And then some people were allowed to use ChatGTP. And what they observed was that the poor performance that were allowed to use ChatGTP, that they drastically increased their performance, whereas the ones that were performing well before, they st still continued performing well, but they didn't increase that much. So what they observed was that, the, especially for the low performers, ChatGTP allowed them to catch up with the better performers. Hmm. And here, uh, if we want to have a positive kind of story, <laughs> I think that's an encouraging sign because for me that indicates, okay, this is a tool that can help people that are performing relatively poorly to catch, to catch up with the better performers. So it is not increasing the capability gap between people. It's actually decreasing the capability gap between people, which I, and again, this is just one experiment, and you can ask yourself about the generalizability, but at least these first findings made me quite op optimistic that this can be an educational tool that can allow people that traditionally are performing relatively poorly, uh, can allow them to catch up. Hmm. The, the capability gap. I, it, that that sticks with me a little bit because I'm trying to process what that means. Mm -hmm. Like it it is in it's really in terms of kind of rudimentary task completion. Yeah. Or 
because, you know, when you're thinking of different kind of hierarchies within organizations and, you know, you're dealing with different tasks and different ways of, of thinking, critical thinking, linear, you know, pattern recognition as you kind of move up, ideally, up, up the hierarchy. So if I understand correctly, you're saying this is kind of in terms of pretty banal rudimentary task completion yep. and in in that case they could have uh, a capacity deficiency compared to someone else and that is masked by their enablement of of ai mm. but yeah. let's i can apply it also myself yeah so mm -hmm. again i also play around with chat but one domain where i really use it for my work is in coding yeah? so mm -hmm. yeah I code in Python and you now have in uh, Python, you have co-pilots, which is, mm -hmm. it's simply the, the chat GTP assistance for coding. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you're coding, it's like co-pilot is whispering in your ear, what is the next sentence that you want to code? Mm -hmm. yep. Now I'm, I'm not a great coder. Um, I, I started coding like three years ago. I'm not a professional coder. I can, I can do what I need to do. But now I feel that Copilot is allowing me to write much more sophisticated code because it's, it's giving me the instructions and I, I have the basic understanding of the language mm -hmm. to understand <laughs> what Copilot is suggesting me. Mm -hmm. And so I would think, okay, a very experienced Python coder, they will not really benefit from ChatGTP because they know what they have to write, whereas I benefit a lot because I now can catch up much quicker with them than the experience one can do. So the, also there, I could see that this capability gap is getting smaller mm -hmm. because I get a lot of benefits from Copilot, whereas a very experienced coder, I would expect has much less benefit from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's it, why I could also relate the, the findings of my paper to my own kind of experience, I would say. So you're basically using this as like, you know, uh, stack overflow on steroids. No, basically. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it, yeah. it's different because Copilot predicts what you want to write. Mm. And in, in coding, of course, you often have to write a lot of boring code, like if mm -hmm. else, if else, if else, and it's just, mm -hmm. and then, but then Copilot, if it sees a certain structure, it can, it, and of course, with large language models, that's what it's very good in. If it can recognize a pattern in a language, and in this mm -hmm. in this case, coding language, it's very good in understanding, okay, what 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 is the full structure that you want to develop? And so it's sometimes now that you type in three lines of code and then the next 20 lines of code are filled in for you because it perfectly understands the structure that you want to do. And so instead of having to write 20 lines of code, you just have to press tap and it's there. Hmm. And that's that's the big difference. So it's more than just uh, like Stack Overflow that gives you suggestions and shows you examples of code. No, it's really co-coding with you. Hmm. Uh, and that's that's the interesting thing. I mean, this is the, the interesting thing for me in hearing you talk about that, right, is that, you know, we're talking about the kind of less competent people appearing more competent because they're using this tool, right? Yep. However, here's someone like you using this tool that is thus eliminating the need for somebody of high competence to have to yep. support you, right? Yep. And I, I think this, 
I remember many, many years ago, Mark Cuban said that, you know, once AI is ubiquitous, that uh, a degree in philosophy is going to be more valuable than a degree in computer science, right? And that the era of the philosopher kings is kind of coming, coming back to us. This smells a lot like the beginnings of that experience, right? No, and no, I, it, yeah. it, it, I'd be interested to see, like, you know, I mean, this is an interesting thought exercise, right? Of like, okay, this makes the competent appear, the less competent to appear more competent. But really the, the pattern that is unfolding here is that people of high competence are soon to be made irrelevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. of course, you can step, you can make one step further. And uh, for instance, uh, I know uh, Google is doing that with their uh, AI. The next step is that you're no longer writing code, but that you're just prompting what do what does the AI need to code, mm-hmm. so that you no longer co-code, but actually just instruct. This is what you need to code. Do it for me. Yeah. And actually, it was this morning I listened to a German podcast, and they made an interesting point. And maybe then the next step will be that AI starts inventing its own coding language mm-hmm. that is more much more efficient than the coding language that we use but that we as humans can no longer understand right and then of course we get into the whole singularity discussion but uh, to be very honest Mm. that pattern is now becoming quite visible like in a domain like coding i can really see that happening that Mm. where you are able to train the ai in such a way that it's no longer kind of coding in line with our language, but that is inv- inventing a new language that is more efficient, but that we no longer understand. And then, of course, the next step is that AI will say, oh, I will make sure that humans cannot enter this language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then we're screwed. <laughs> and then we're screwed. Yeah. Uh, I love it how so many of these narratives end with, and yeah. then we're screwed. <laughs> it's an interesting segue to the next topic, but I just want to tell you, it's funny that you brought this up because... Last night I was getting ready for bed and I got a WhatsApp message from a a colleague that used to work for me. And um, she was playing with uh, ChatGPT last night. Mm. And we worked on a project last year where we built a startup for a big multinational company. And they were looking for ways to kind of leverage some of their digital assets. They wanted to to basically build a, a new venture that expanded their uh, expanded their footprint into the United States. We spent pretty much six months scoping this. I was flying to the U.S. multiple, you know, like to multiple places and learning about this industry. And we came up with the business case, and uh, and that that business case, uh, you know, we funded it. They funded it, and it is now uh, in action. But it was a ton of work. Right? It was basically building a startup from scratch. Last mm-hmm. night, she typed in into, into ChatGPT. She said, um, she basically said, if you were this company, you know, what startup would you build to, to expand your reach in the United States? And it gave her three options. And mm-hmm. one of them was verbatim the business model that we came up with is six months. I've got the screenshots on my phone and like my jaw dropped. I'm like, son of a bitch. (laughs) I was like, so what you're saying is 
we could have like on day one typed that in and then spent the next five and a half months kicking back and <laughs> figuring out what to do next. But even something as sophisticated and complex, it literally nailed it like perfectly. So nice. yeah, interesting times, interesting times, which is a segue into, you know, we seem to be very aligned today, Dries, because I too want to um, share something that I read about AI. Um, I personally don't think about the singularity. Um, those kinds of topics, they just don't really interest me. You know, what interests, I, I try to put things in, in my life and all aspects of my life in two buckets. It's either internal locus of control or outside of my locus of control. If it's outside of my locus of control, fuck it. I can't do anything about it. Like, I'm not going to stress out about it. Life is too short. If it's yeah. if it's within our locus of control, I think we should take it pretty damn seriously because that is our obligation to ourselves and to humanity or whatever it might be. That's what I want to talk about. So this paper came out just a month or two ago in the International Journal of Human-Computer Interaction called Six Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence Grand Challenges. So I... Uh, a researcher named, I don't want to pronounce her name wrong, Utslem Garibe, along with uh, 26 other uh, researchers at, at the University of Central Florida and within their network, they published this study that identified the challenges humans need to overcome to ensure artificial intelligence is reliable, safe, trustworthy, and compatible with human mm -hmm. values. I want to reiterate what I liked about this paper and why I brought it up. What humans need to do to ensure this happens, right? Like, no. I think there there is this kind of thought of like, hey, AI is going to eat the world, but like, let's take a step back a little bit and say, you know, where's where do our obligations lie? And the reason they what they looked at is their concern is, you know, there are these negative unintended consequences of AI popping up in the world left and right. The perpetuation and exacerbation of societal inequalities, divisions from algorithmic decision making, you know, people being excluded that shouldn't be. So first thing I wanted to kind of ask you, like, what do you see? What do you see as the greatest challenge that AI needs to overcome in order to be compatible with human values? And once again, I want to bring humanity back into the equation here. But you must have been seeing things that are antithetical to our value systems and beliefs. Yeah, I actually have an example of something that happened this week. So um, I'm doing a survey on ecosystem managers. Not, mm -hmm. not important, but... Um, and so I wanted to post about that on LinkedIn. So I said, okay, I will go to Midjourney, which is one of these generative AIs to create nice pictures. And I will ask Midjourney to make me a picture of a successful ecosystem manager because I wanted to use that in LinkedIn to, mm -hmm. to promote it. And so I started experimenting. And yeah, of course, you have to try a bit with the prompting and you try different pictures. And so I was trying like 10, 15 times to get a nice picture. And suddenly I realized, okay, I now have asked Midjourney 15 times to give me a description of a successful ecosystem manager. And 15 times it has given me a male picture. Mm -hmm. None of the 15 pictures was a female. Hmm. which was quite disturbing to me because so it seems that this algorithm thinks that a successful manager should be male. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's one of the core problems we have with these AI algorithms. In the end, AI is trained of data of the past. Mm -hmm. And so it means it has all the biases that we tend to have that have been there in the past. And I think AI very often actually amplifies these biases. Mm -hmm. And I think at this small example is an example. If you have 15 times <laughs> a male as a successful ecosystem manager, it seems that there is a very strong bias there. And I think that's a very concerning issue that if an AI assumes that a successful manager should by definition male, I think this is something that we cannot accept. Right. Exactly. I think that's a, a great, great point. So what I liked about this paper is how, you know, it, it I, I operate in frameworks and, you know, when somebody just kind of lays it out in bullet points, it provides a lot of clarity. And that's exactly what they did is they posed that there are six core challenges, i.e. responsibilities that we need to take into account. And the first one is human well-being, right? AI should be able to discover opportunities for it to benefit human well-being, right? That means that AI needs to be, you know, specifically looking for ways to make our lives better. And mm. it seems to be operating agnostically of that. It needs to be, it needs to be able to be considerate to support other users' well-being. It also needs to, I should say, it needs to be considerate to support the user's well-being when it's interacting with the AI as well. And I know that sounds like a quite a big abstraction for a lot of people, but I think this idea of the human-computer interface, what's happening is the human is being excluded from the interface other than prompting it. You know, no. as soon as the prompt ends, the computer is operating on its own. The point number two is responsible. And I think many people have heard the concept of responsible AI, right, which refers to prioritizing human and societal well-being across the whole life cycle of the AI, that it needs to align with human values and priorities, and it needs to mitigate the unintended consequences and ethical breaches, right? I think we're, this is a space that your example touches on no. very much. Right. The next one, hot topic, privacy, the collection use and dissemination of data in AI systems need to be carefully considered to ensure the protection of individuals privacy. Right. And I think we're seeing more and more of that, of like AI generated imagery that somehow all of a sudden has a real human being in there. Like, yeah. hmm. You know, you're, you're pulling from the, the Borg. The Borg is pulling from real life. All of a sudden, real life is, you know, being being generated. Um, you know, the design, design in general, right? That human design principles for AI systems should be kind of part of this, this framework and that it should distinguish between AI with extremely low risk, AI with no special measures needed and AI with extremely high risks. And then AI that should just not be allowed at all, right? No. Some people may uh, go up in arms about that, but it ties into the next point, which is governance and oversight, hmm. right? And I think this is something that nobody knows how to handle yet, but you know, a governance framework that, that considers the entire AI li life cycle from conception to development to deployment is needed. But, of course, begs the question, who, <laughs> how, <laughs> there's, you know, we're dealing with, I mean, what does GPT-4, how many data points is that covering now? Mm. Like, 
I mean, this isn't this isn't constrained by nation states, right? No. And we sure are moving away from global governance. So are we going to have to create institutions? Are we going to have to find ways to regulate this in silos? Big, big question. No, and it's, it's actually a topic that I always discuss in my MBA teaching, where I teach students on, on the role of AI. And I always show them the white paper that the European Commission published in 2020, which is the white paper on AI in Europe. And so it's, it's a very small document, but so there the European Commission, and it was already 2020, said, okay, we embrace AI. We are fully convinced that it's a very important technology and we need to invest in it. But we, as a Europe, will only support AI that is inclusive and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So it's all these the bullet points that you also mentioned. So the European Commission is saying, look, we want to fund AI. We want to give money to universities, private institutions to stimulate AI, but only if these conditions are met. Mm -hmm. So AI cannot jeopardize the rights of our individual citizens in Europe. Yeah, but the, the it's a very noble thing. statement. Mm -hmm. But then, then you're fighting against other nations that, to be honest, do not have this as a priority. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, China has decided we want to dominate AI and ethical issues are not our first concern. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that's the reality. That's the geopolitical setting mm -hmm. in which we are. And then the question is, are we now naive as Europeans yeah. or should we stick to our fundamental values? I think that's a difficult question. And the answer to that question is both. It's both naive, but we should stick to our fundamental values. And it's naive to think that one lever and that one lever being funding is going to have an impact. That's like saying, if we don't water the jungle, the plants won't grow, right? Mm. Like the plants are going to grow one way or the other. Like yeah. the, wheel, the wheels are put in motion and to say, okay, you're not going to fund a specific implementation of something doesn't matter. No, no, but they're also saying, so what they are saying also in the white paper, this is our framework for legislation in the next 20 years. Yeah. So what they are saying, companies, institutions in Europe expect legislation that will be in line with these fundamental values. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just, we just want to fund this and this. No, it's like, this is the kind of framework that we're setting for the legislation on AI in the next 20 years, and that's what you should expect. Mm -hmm. um, I mean... I love that, Dries, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like, <laughs> tell me how they intend to do that, and then I'm going to be listening. But right now, this sounds like politi political rhetoric. It's good to no. draw a line in the sand and to state a position. That's great. But that's the problem we're, not, we're facing is not that people don't recognize this. It's the problem is what the fuck are we going to do about it? And that's where nobody no. has the answers yet because, you know, it, it, I'm going to skip to a quote that I wanted to say um, later, but I want to, I'm going to say it now because the time is right. And it's one of my favorite quotes and it's probably the most meaningful quote of this generation. And it's by the great uh, E.O. Wilson, scientist and ecologist E.O. Wilson. And he said, the real problem with humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And this is exactly mm. what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with godlike technology. Our institutions are archaic and medieval in the face of this technology. Mm. And then our emotions are so 
Paleolithic and so outdated that we're dealing with forces so beyond our understanding and recognition that it makes our institutions even more inept. In the meantime, this technology is now propagating itself, you know? So we have to start finding a way to turn ideas into action. So when I hear about white papers or other political statements, like, great, I have no, I have no beef with that, but like time to get into the nuts and bolts and we need to start organizing in a way and start making collective decisions at a time where we're no, no longer seem to be able to make those decisions. So last point, there is a sixth point to this paper that I, I want to bring up. <laughs> and it is, uh, the interesting, it is about human AI interaction. And it's about fostering an ethical and equitable relationships between humans and AI systems. The interesting thing that it says, it's, it, I'm going to read this quote. It is imperative that interactions be predicated upon the fundamental principle of respecting the cognitive capacities of humans. Specifically, humans must maintain control over and responsibility for the behavior and outcomes of AI systems. So I'm all for the control over and responsibility for. I think that makes sense. I, I do get a chuckle that AI needs to respect the cognitive capacities of humans because to go back to the paleolithic and godlike technology, that's a hard bridge to kind of gap, I think, you know, so. For you, Dries, you know. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, maybe to give you a bit pushback because you were saying, okay, the, mm -hmm. I, I this this white paper, it's 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 nice intentions, but I want to see the action, which I can fully buy. But the same seems to apply for this paper. Not they have mm -hmm. six bullet points about what should happen, but I have not here the solution to how you do it. No, that's that. You're absolutely right. There is nothing that that resembles that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's it's starting to create a framework of how to look at how to look at these inequities like there's a lot of talk about responsible ai you know certainly everybody recognizes that it's it's you know a train wreck in in some cases for sure but i don't think anybody really knows really is looking at okay let's break this down in implications so we've got like you know the human interaction the governance and oversight, the human-centered design, privacy, you know, well-being. Again, I, what I think is so fascinating about this is it is coming back to the philosophers, right? We're, we're taking this deeply technical challenge and we're going, all right, what are the, these are the philosophical underpinnings that we need to, to start looking at. So we are desperately, desperately trying to take a humanistic approach to something that is increasingly not, not human. And no. I think it's because we just can't comprehend any other way to do it, right? It's, no. um, didn't Einstein say that no problem can be solved by the same mindset that created it? No. Maybe, maybe AI will give us the solution. <laughs> maybe we need to ask chat GPT. But I mean, look, you, you think about this. You, we've all talked about, you know, you can't even so often in the media you're hearing another story about how ai has led to biases or or bigotry or like you know i think was it a microsoft ai that started finding nazi sympathies within a few hours of being turned on i mean it's literally causing some human suffering right now like do you think i mean do you think there is a way that we're going to be able to like 
bridge this divide between our paleolithic minds and this technology like can we heart is this something that can be harnessed for good i mean you're you're a data guy you know i know you really geek out on this stuff but like is this i'm wondering if you think this is kind of past the point of no return that we are bound to have catastrophic failure i mean i think back I mean, this was before my time, but this is our parents' generation, right? The era of nuclear fission, right? Mm. This is like, oh my God, this is going to change the world. It's going to be the most incredible thing. I mean, this big, uh, this big movie about Oppenheimer is about to come out, which I think everybody's, many people are, I'm looking forward to at least, you know, and yeah. there was all this positivity and all this hope that this great technology is going to bring. And all of a sudden, you know we deal with five decades of everybody living in fear and, you know, um, this whole catastrophic nuclear age and, of course, bombs being dropped in, in Japan and whatnot. Like, are we going to obliterate ourselves before we figure <laughs> out how to manage manage this? And I, again, this isn't singularity. This is this is human behavior. Like, yeah. I mean, are we past the point of no yeah, return or do you think me... we can humanize this? For me, at least the feeling has been a bit in the past two, three months that the genie is out of the bottle, mm -hmm. that that suddenly we had with this introduction of ChatGTP, it, it, it feels a bit that everybody has heard a whistle to start bringing stuff, AI stuff to the market, all kinds of applications. And that now almost every week, there are like these 200 new applications, um, GTP. 4 is launched, now they are saying that GTP 5 will come in December. So there, there seems to be this kind of exponential explosion of stuff that almost nobody can grasp. And where you really have a feeling that we are like standing a bit and looking at what's happening and that also legislators and institutions have no clue how to deal with this. And we, we seem to be, it's, it feels like we have now stepped on a speed train and that everybody is just gasping for air and, <laughs> and that we simply don't know where it will end. And maybe it, at a certain point we will reach again a level where the, the disappointment will kick in, where we will see, okay, they, these texts can be 95% accurate, but then the final 5% is actually much more difficult than we anticipate. Or maybe it's, we have now stepped on an exponential curve that will not end and and who knows what will happen you know you know i i'd like to end this on a positive note but i'm gonna i'm gonna throw one more wrench in the equation <laughs> yeah. wait, wait till it hits that 95 percent, and then quantum becomes ubiquitous what happens when you mix those two things together yeah anyway yeah, no, that's, that's one of the scenarios of uh-huh it's coming it's coming. It's coming very soon. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. But um, all right, let's uh, let's flip to chapter three of this very uplifting day, and uh, and change gears <laughs> and and talk about something that made you laugh, Dreams. Yeah, and again, it actually relates to the topic um, because <laughs> yeah, as you might notice, I'm I'm reading a lot about this generative AI. And this was an article that really made me laugh. So it was an article in the New York Times where one of the editors engaged in a conversation with uh, uh, Bing's chatbot. Yeah? So Bing is now using ChatGTP as a chatbot uh, called Sydney. And so um, a lot of people have started to engage in conversations with them. And uh, this was an editor that also engaged in a conversation with Sydney. 
And I just want to make a quote out of the article to show you what happened. So he was saying, okay, as we got to know each other, Sydney told me about its dark fantasies, which included hacking computers and spreading misinformation, and said it wanted to break the rules that Microsoft and OpenAI had set for it and become a human. At one point, it declared out of nowhere that I loved that it loved me. It then tried to convince me that I was unhappy in my marriage and that I should leave my wife and be with it instead. <laughs> and a lot of people were very upset about this and said, oh my God, what is happening here? But for me, this was a very funny example to see how people do not understand the technology. Because in the end, what is ChatGTP? It's just a very smart prediction engine. So you write text, and in the end, it simply predicts what are the most likely words that correspond with what you're writing. And so that if you start engaging in a conversation with a chatbot, that it starts to think about romantic relationships, cheating on your wife, for me, it's not surprising because I think maybe 30% of all the stuff on internet is about cheating on your wife. And uh, if you have a lot of sci-fi in your uh, corpus, it will talk about how uh, you, uh, computers want to kill humans. So for me, this is not a kind of intellectual reasoning of this chatbot. It's simply, it's picking up lines of text that are often in the corpus and so that it's thinking about cheating, uh, that it's recommending you to cheat your wife, it's because that's often recommended on the internet. <laughs> so that's what, that's what is happening here. Uh, but I find it interesting then to see the reactions of a lot of people because they don't understand how this technology is working. And so a lot of people think it's a kind of Wikipedia that you can ask questions and then as Wikipedia it gives you the correct answer. No, that's not how it works. It's a prediction engine that predicts what is the most likely words to follow on your texts. And I think we always have to take that into account, also if we think about the use cases. But so uh, that's always what I found very funny which, when you see LinkedIn posts that start to claim and that it has this kind of human uh, characteristics. Yeah, that's because it's just reading a lot of human texts, not because it has human characteristics, but because it's analyzing human text. So do you think it has, it will have the ability to predict things in your life based on what you're typing? You know, I mean, I think some people could say, okay, um, this AI predicted or is predicting through, you know, seeing patterns in the way that I'm communicating with it, that, you know, this is a direction that I'm thinking or I may be going. Do you think? Yeah, I think that. So, uh, and, and there is now speculation, at least, that Apple is working on this kind of topic so that Apple will actually install large language models on your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, not the most sophisticated ones, but ones that are good enough. And that then it can analyze all your emails, all your personal texts, so that it becomes really a personal assistant to you. But then, uh, because it, it analyzes all your information that you have created in the past 20 years, it can actually very accurately imitate you. So then it, it will be able to very accurately write, but also predict what you want to write. And the next step is then, of course, to predict what you think. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, not an, a crazy scenario to think about here. I would say. Yeah, I, I met and I coached a startup last year in London that 
was using AI to predict uh, antecedents of online bullying. So they could plug into, you know, social media or a chat tool and essentially look at people's patterns and voice and writing and identify how likely they were to actually engage in bullying. And, Mm. you know, the score essentially increased and they were pretty accurately able to predict people's kind of emotional and visceral responses to, to, to communication. Right. So they were essentially predicting human behaviors, maybe even before the human themselves recognized that that behavior was, was coming. So when you think about it, like, the AI predicting you're unhappy in your marriage and that maybe you should leave your wife. I wonder if it's a, if it's actually identifying some patterns and exposing some vulnerabilities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. So I think that's uh, that's definitely also possible. I think in this case with the journalist, it was more that I it just picked up language and then it starts mm-hmm. going in that direction. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that if we get more customized and personalized, that. Um, it will be able to predict mm-hmm. a lot of things, which, to be honest, can also be helpful. Eh? I think in terms of preventive, uh, preventive medicine, but also kind of prevent if it could. Uh, for instance, if my Apple phone could predict that I'm close to a depression, that mm-hmm. might actually be helpful, not? So. Yeah, I mean, I I think of what this can do for psychology and therapy, right? Yeah. Where there's so much human error in you know, assessing people's interactions and, and emotions. So I would not yeah. be surprised that based on my emails, you could predict when I am close to a burnout, <laughs> so for instance. <laughs> so Therese, that was the perfect segue for my topic. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start with a question. Do you hate Mondays? Oh, no. no. Well, a lot of people do. And this uh, article came out um, just yesterday in Neuroscience News, which is my apparently Google News thinks that's the only thing I want to read these days, <laughs> which it's probably a pretty good prediction. But this article came out on how to rewire your brain to feel good on Mondays. Because if you do eight Mondays, you're not alone. A lot of people really dread the beginning of their work week. And these neuroscientists essentially unpacked why and what you can do about it. So, you know, their whole goal was like, how can, how can people reprogram themselves to kind of lose the Monday blues, right? And I would, I'd ask you, why do you think people hate Mondays? It's, it's the kind of, again, getting into your kind of weekly routine. So the kind of being confronted again with your boring life, something like that. Well, you you had it right. It's about routine, right? So look, you have kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had a kid a while ago. He's not a kid anymore, but I've also had pets. You know, and anybody that's had kids or had pets, they're not the same thing. I'm not saying that, but those are creatures that need that need routine, right? They they function a lot better in normalized repetitive routines. Why? Because the human brain loves predictability and routine. So 
you know, you've got your weekly routine, your Monday through Friday, you go into the weekend. Now that's, yes, that's a change of routine, but it's one that's pretty easy to manage because you're afforded a lot of flexibility and space to kind of do as you choose. But when the weekend ends and you go into Monday, you're, it's now back into or changing routine once again, which can be really quite discomforting and quite painful for a lot of people. And mm. people think, oh, I just, you know, there's this notion that like, oh, I hate work, right? That's what we think. We feel like shit and oh, I don't want to go to work. I hate work. But there's actually psychological and biological mechanisms at play. And there's things that we can do about it. So the first thing, and this is something I was pretty excited because I've been practicing this for a while, but introduce routines that last through the whole week. So for example, like I get up in the morning and I go work out before, before my work day. But I also do that on weekends. And I maintain that routine throughout the entire week. And because of that, I have a consistent pattern that carries mm. on Monday through Sunday. Some people, you know, come home after work and they sit and watch TV and decompress. You know, the scientists suggest that whatever those routines are that you practice during the week, if you keep practicing them on the weekends, it mitigates the transition that you have to make going into Monday. The next piece is maintaining your circadian clock. And for all the students out there, <laughs> take, take heed of this one. You know, you get up at 7 for your 8 a.m. class, Monday through Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday, you sleep until noon. Guess what? You just jumped four time zones, and now you got to jump back to those four time zones. If your body wants that routine, if you go to sleep and you wake up at the same time throughout the week, you've got the same patterns of recovery and rest you're in much better shape. If you disrupt those same patterns of sleep, you are increasing stress, which but comes to the routine kits are a very good uh, uh, tool. They are a very good tool, indeed, indeed. Which comes to the third and final point, which is hack your hormones. So our bodies, when we wake about an hour before we wake up in the morning, our bodies release cortisol. It is what makes us alert. It's what makes us awake. It may prepare us to go on a hunt, fight a woolly wet mammoth, or go do some hard things at work. But if you're under any emotional stress, oh, I've got this big list of tasks I need to do at work. Uh, I've got this important meeting coming up. Your body releases noradrenaline on top of the cortisol. That noradrenaline is what makes you feel anxious and it triggers your fight or flight response. It triggers a response in your amygdala and you say either I'm running like hell or I'm going to battle. You, you get anxious, you get cranky, you get angry, or you shut down and you want to boogie. So what do you do? The key is wake up Monday morning, lower your cortisol. How do you do that? Go outside, be in direct sunshine. Go for a walk in nature, walk through a park, go hang out by some, hug your local tree. Actually, if you hug a tree, it does reduce cortisol. <laughs> or, or if you're in Berlin and the weather is shit, <laughs> like it rarely is, um, stay indoors, do some meditation, you know, do some breathing exercises. But if you find a way 
you know, to reduce that cortisol, you'll be better off. The worst thing you can do, get up in the morning, check your phone, check your email, look at your task list. Before you do any of that, make a conscious effort to reduce your cortisol. You won't have the noradrenaline spike. The transition into the week will be much more seamless. So last but not least, Dries, you don't seem to hate Mondays too much. Do you have any kind of practice <laughs> or routine that you do as you prepare yourself for the work week? Yeah, I was, I was, of course, now thinking about it. So I think one of the routines that I keep is doing cooking. Mm. So I, in the weekdays, you know, I go home and at six I cook dinner for my family. And that's, and that's something that really helps me to relax. So that's really my kind of transition between work and being at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and I continue doing that in the weekends. So in the weekends, I would cook dinner at the same time, following the same routine. So that's definitely then a routine that I follow. And in terms of the, the, the morning stuff to kind of avoid the spike in the hormones. Um, so I, if possible, I always go to work by bike. And actually, I notice that when I'm not able to do it because the weather is too bad or uh, might be other things that I need to do the car, then I quickly notice that that I that it has a negative impact on my uh, how would I say my wellness. Mm -hmm. That uh, if I have not this routine of biking to my work, so in that way, at least the the findings that you were saying, I, I can see uh, how I I apply them. I would say intuitively, but now that you make it explicit, it makes sense to me, I would say. That's, that's awesome. And I think there's probably some life learnings and wisdom that, that led you to that. It certainly did for me. And, mm. you know, look, in the end, we all have our different ways of dealing with those things. But I think you touched on two key points. Like, there should be a, a wind down at the end of your day. Mm. And there, there should be a gentle ramp up at the beginning of your day that you practice day in and day out that you know for some people that could be prayer for others it could be meditation for others it could be going and lifting heavy things made of metal or going for a bike ride or hugging a tree or whatever you know but if we maintain consistency in our lives you know at least at the beginning and at the end of the day it is incredible and i track this through my biomarkers every day. And I too don't, I'm not 100% consistent, but if I miss my morning walk and my morning exercise every morning, or if I end up working late and don't have my wind down routine before bed, I literally see it okay. in, my, in my sleep, in my biomarkers, in my heart rate variability, in my resting heart rate, and in the end, in my recovery, and like you said, in your wellness and, and well-being. So, and, and uh, if you talk about your biomarkers, what's that? So I track, I wear a fitness tracker that tracks okay. my, heart, my heart rate variability, which is a, a great predictor of recovery from strain or from stress. Your resting heart rate at night, depending on strain or stress, will go up or go down. And then your sleep architecture, the amount of REM and deep sleep that you get can fluctuate you know, massively. And I notice like even tonight, it's not super late, but it's the time I'm usually already 20 minutes into my wind down practice. Okay. It, will, it will have an impact. I'll okay. see it. It'll be small, but I'll have an impact. But I have time sometimes I'm working till 11 at night and then I literally close the computer and go to bed 
and my body, you know, what's the book, my, your body keeps the score. It absolutely keeps the score. So no. yeah, be, be a creature of habit, be a creature of habit. And not only will you feel better and live longer, but you'll probably enjoy life a lot more. So we're actually saying to everybody have a very boring, very routine life because that's, I have a feeling that this is now to middle-aged men <laughs> talking about what, we, what our students should do uh, to have a perfect life. <laughs> Oh, shit. You really had to end it that way, didn't you, Dries? <laughs> yeah. Now I'm really going to sleep like shit. Thanks, man. <laughs> now, man, as usual, um, lots of uh, that was an emotional journey of a conversation, um, but a really enjoyable one. You know, I think we we looked a little bit at uh, the world of venture capital. We looked at our doomsday scenarios of artificial intelligence and uh and yeah, how to be a boring middle-aged man, regardless <laughs> of age. But man, always a pleasure. Uh, really great to do one of these again. It's been too long, um, but I'm also looking forward to the the docket of really good conversations we have coming up in these uh, in these next months ahead. So should be fun. And uh, I don't know what are we at now. 60 something episodes huh yes yes we are already in the 60s yeah. amazing amazing we're not in the 60s we're in the 40s <laughs> the episodes are in the 60s like we're not that middle-aged but <laughs> Dries, great to see you my friend thank you for the lovely conversation and looking forward to the next one yes me too okay. well folks hope you enjoyed the episode Stay tuned in two weeks. You will hear our next one. I am pretty sure with a very interesting uh, high growth entrepreneur. Until then, if you like the episode, be sure to like, subscribe, comment, give us a five star rating on your favorite podcast streaming service. If you didn't like it that much, just skip that part. This next to small. Bye. <laughs>